you are at Founders FAQ, answers to all the possible questions of a founder. So in a lot of ways, hiring at the early stage is, is a game of two things. Is one, how good are you telling your story to the people who might care about it? And how good are you in terms of navigating the network to find those very talented people who might be interested in the story um, of why you're trying to do something the way you, you know you, you are trying to do it and almost everybody is inspired to something great in their life or with their time and are you able to tell them that story Welcome to Founders FAQ. Today, my guest is Erwil Karaba. Erwil is the Chief Product Officer at Earning. Before Earning, he co-founded 500 startups Summer Fund, and right now, he is a venture advisor in Dark. He was head of product at Lyft and led and started many product teams at Facebook, including Internet.org. As a founder, he co-founded SplitAid, which was acquired by Mesh.com, and he is also an active investor and early backers of many unicorn companies. Hi, Arbil. Welcome to Founders of AQ. Hi, Ilke. Thanks for having me, man. You're kind of unique for me because it was our early days in our startup and we were like ran out of money and you became our first angel investor. And while you were writing your check, we all drank. So... It's really unique for me to having you at Founders of AQ. I have tons of questions for you. That's awesome. It was very unique for me as well. It was the only check I wrote when I was drunk. Yeah, you you have many titles. You you are founder. You are an active investor, and you scaled many teams at Facebook, Lyft, and Earning. I just want to start your investor profile. How do you get the investment decisions when you first met the founder, and what do you recommend for founders who are reaching out to an angel investor to raise money? First of all, I I'm not a very traditional type of investor, so I think people should take it with a grain of salt. And I did get into investing by accident, not by intention. I didn't have an intention to really, you know, be an angel investor or invest in, you know, X many companies with a specific theory. That wasn't the starting point. The starting point was merely seeing people around me who are extremely smart and being implanted by if they have certain qualities to, to build great products and, and scale them. And especially being an Immigrant founder, I have seen myself struggle with, you know, coming to the area and not having a network and not being able to you know, really get into the, the, the investor um, ecosystem to be able to, you know, show what we have out there and to get the warm intros. And, and obviously I'm talking about, you know, 10 years, 10 years ago or more, 10, 13 years ago. At the time, it, to me, it was very important to be able to provide the opportunity to the people I know who were having similar challenges. So kind of like this, that's what got me into angel investing. And it was literally, you know, done in an angel investing way where, you know, I believed in the people um, and I knew the people and that's why I did the, made the investments. Not because of their pitch, not because of, you know, their specific ideas, just literally because I, I, I knew the people and I believed in their ability to, to do that something great because I knew they didn't come here for no reason. I knew they left a lot of things, you know, behind for a reason. And they had this competitive nature and they had the, the, the technical talent and ability to utilize that competitive energy, you know, towards building great things. That's literally how it started. And when I get to meet you guys, I was still not a, you know, professional investor of any sorts, but I was kind of going out of my network and starting to make investments. And it was more about, and I think there's a specific category of investors like me. It was more about, to me, meeting unique people 
and learning from them. So for me, investment was a journey of learning. Um, and I wanted to invest in companies that I would really want to learn from what they were doing. I would like to, you know, see the outcomes of things they were doing because I care about what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish. And it was a similar, you know, story with you guys. Like when I met you, you guys were, you know, in the Bay Area, left a lot of things behind and living a very spread life. And to your point, cash just was extremely resourceful, extremely resourceful. And I saw that kind of energy that would, you know, take any enterprise, any business, any initiative to the next level. So that's the kind of thing I usually look at, which is not very common in, I think, most most investors that are more traditional and obviously more professional. And obviously, when we started the 500 Istanbul Fund, we had to come up with a much more of a formal thesis. And the thesis was mostly around two things. One, things that had the potential to scale in terms of product market fit and a unique portfolio of founders taking it up. And the way, you know, in a traditional setting that we identify potential for a kind of great market is that you have any signal that suggests that you have some market traction, that, you know, you have early customers that loves you, you have you have some way of like getting into market. And do we as investors believe that that market is going to be huge or is already, you know, large enough and is ready for disruption, either because it's ready for mountain or for other reasons. And your Pretty successful on your investments in your portfolio. You have unicorn companies. So what's the formula to be an early baker of those companies? There is probably only one formula, which is already exploited by a lot of the successful investors. And that is to always try to be around extremely talented people. To me, that was the most important thing, you know, from very early on, right? And I think... When I was, you know, picking a high school and I was picking a college to go to, when I, you know, left the college to come to the area, it was all the same reasons. Just I want to surround myself with the most talented people. And even in the area, it's very easy to not surround yourself with the most talented people. So, you know, I spend um, a lot of my time trying to find, you know, people to roommate, trying to find people to share an office space with and, and always find like where is this highest quality of network, you know, people hang out. And and I was lucky to do that, you know, to find find that very early on. There was an incubator right in front of my house where Instagram was, where a lot of, you know, amazing successful companies were when they were just two people company. And I, I was not necessarily a founder there, but I was able to, you know, just go in there and hang out, you know, same with Angelus was, you know, two blocks away from me. And same with the, you know, YC network, Five Fund Startups network, you know, PayPal Mafia network. That, that to me is still only, only way to find great, you know, great returns of people. If you make it a goal every day to surround yourself with the talent of people and try to, you know, get to know them and get them to know you and be helpful, you end up finding great deals. Great. And my other questions comes for your founder side. You came to SF many years ago and started SpeedAid. How was your core assets help you to run and grow the company until its exit? And what will be your recommendation for founders having question about core assets startup needs match? It was an interesting story because first of all, I wasn't alone. It was already as an idea started by two Stanford um, MBA students. And we, by luck, came together because of a specific technology that I have developed you know, when I was back in Turkey around online you know, video streaming. Spirit was trying to build an online video-based, real-time video-based dating service. And at the time, that wasn't necessarily a very well understood technology and very few people understood how to scale it. Maybe a handful of people in the world understood how to scale it. And I was just lucky to be one of them. Just because of my pure interest in 
enabling real-time interactions. And I wasn't even thinking about Split as an application. We were building online interactive talent shows. We were trying to build, you know, online video conferencing, other types of applications. And those two Stanford MBA students found me only because I was writing about it also online. But there was, you know, enough online search for, you know, at the time, a real-time video streaming. I would come up probably in the first, you know, two Google searches. And that was my great asset in that sense, right? Like I was, I was nobody some, you know, someone in the world doing something maybe random, but for them, it wasn't random. You know, when they searched online, there were only a handful of people, you know, who maybe knew what they were talking about, you know, when they were, you know, posting on online forums and in discussions. And that got us together. And when we got together, I realized, you know, these, these two people that we're starting this company with already have the business side covered. And I had utmost confidence in my ability to actually bring the best technical team behind. And as you know, Aaron Bali, you know, agreed to join and a few other amazing founders agreed to join to this founding team of ours. And again, the greatest teams possible. Great. And you have scaled many teams in Facebook, Lyft, and now Earning. What would be your advice for founders who are ready to scale their teams from 50 people to 200 people? Scaling a team within a company like Facebook versus scaling a team as are, are very different things. A company like Facebook has an amazing brand that attracts a lot of great people, but also has a hiring machine, an onboarding machine, as you might call it. And even then, it requires some greasing. And that's why, you know, I was usually pulled in by the SFT team to build specific teams and from scratch. When you're at a startup, you don't have those well-greased machines. And usually early startups don't have that kind of brand to, to pull people in. So in a lot of ways, hiring at the early stage is, is a game of two things. Is one, how good are you telling your story to the people who might care about it? And how good are you in terms of navigating the network to find those very talented people who might be interested in the story um, of why you're trying to do something, the way you, you, know, you, you are trying to do it. And almost everybody is inspired to do something great in their life or with their time. And are you able to tell them that story? Because people are not necessarily looking for jobs. Like it's not, it's a, it's a misconception. Um, a lot of times I, I see, you know, you write a job description, you post a job description somewhere, you're trying to, people are looking for jobs, especially in the startup industry. Uh, people are looking for a passion, looking for a goal, looking for people to work with, right? That you're making the decision because you really believe this is the right mission to be behind and this is the right people you want to surround yourself with. So, in a lot of ways, as a founder, building a team is very similar to raising raising a run um, because you're trying to sell your vision and sell your company to investors, and you use the same um, core skills to you know sell yourself and sell your company and sell your mission to the people who will work with you. So it's it's in a way it's a very similar game. The people who are usually good at hiring are also good at raising. The people who are good at raising are also good at hiring. But it's also important to understand what kind of people you want to hire. Not every company requires the same type of funding team. Not every company requires the same type of first five to ten people. It's it's really a I think unique talent for a founder to know exactly which five type of talent they need um, in the first, you know, year of a company. And that's super important to get that right. If you build a company of, you know, five amazing technical talent to do, you know, B2B sales for a SaaS product, good luck. Uh, you might be able to find the best technical product, but your company will never scale. So it's really important to understand what are you spelling as roadblocks ahead of you and what kind of talent you can utilize to de-risk that. So it's almost 
you know, approaching the talent building and team building early on as a way of de-risking your business, just like you approach fundraising as a way of de-risking your business. None of them makes you successful, but um, if you utilize them correctly, it will de-risk your business in the right way and will increase your opportunity to success. Yes, and also it's really important to get A-plus people, but at the same time, more important is keeping them in the company, and which might be kind of hard in SM, right? Indeed. I mean, it is it is really hard. It's still hard. Even though maybe I have mastered the skills you know, at a lot of different places, it is still hard. And hiring is definitely harder than I would say keeping them, but just hiring them doesn't necessarily guarantee that you keep them because everybody's trying to hire the same same, same people, especially if you're in the Bay Area. And, and keeping them is a matter of, again, engaging in the type of activities that those people would enjoy engaging in. And this is not necessarily, you know, about just having, you know, fun all the time together, partying, you know, all the time here. It's just, how do you make work fun? I think that's a really important concept that a lot of founders should um, think hard about how, how do you make work fun? How do you see people coming into the office as an opportunity to light them up? So actually they will want to come back into office first time in the morning, maybe, you know, skipping, taking shower and skipping breakfast, you know, just like rushing in the office. Like, how, how do you create that kind of an environment where people have fun? Again, not in this, in the sense that, you know, you party all the time, but they really enjoy solving the problem that they're solving. They really enjoy working the environment that they're working in. And part of it is, also who you surround them with. A lot of people will leave the company they're working at for usually two reasons. One, they lose the hope that the company is going to do great things. That's obviously one. Second, they lose the trust and hope in the founder and the CEO because that's the you know number two thing that people are betting on for this company's success. And then three, they start enjoying working with the people they're working with. So in a lot of ways, every single new person you hire has a chance to either increase the productivity and the fun of the existing work environment, or they have a chance to decrease the productivity and the fun of the existing work environment. If you, that's why it's really important to keep hiring eight people and not be bound to like, oh, I need to get hundred people. No, if you get the wrong hundred people, you will lose all of your plus people. You will only be left with the, you know, the NC level people. Then there's no way to go back from there. So it's, it's impo- almost impossible to go back from there. And the other parts of scaling the team is firings. What do you recommend for founders in there? It's a tough topic. If you're actually doing a great job hiring, if you're doing a great job keeping a really high bar in terms of what it means to be part of a team, and if you're making performance as transparent as possible, a lot of times you might not have a hard time firing because people might just understand that they might not belong there or they might not necessarily be you know, doing a great job being part of that team. So I think it's even more important firing is that to, you know you want to hire great people and you want to keep a really high bar in terms of like what it means to be part of that team. And you need to be very transparent across the board about performance. And if you do that, it is either a decision that people will make themselves in terms of, again, not belonging in that environment or because the, the, the performance is, is very transparent and what they're contributing is very transparent, you will have an easier time as a founder digesting the idea and the process of letting someone go. And if you also practice letting people go with dignity, especially in, in, in environments like the area, I truly believe it is the best to let people go if they're not necessarily performing in, in your environment because there's a very high likelihood that they will find a better place for themselves. There's a very li- high likelihood. And if you actually had that framework 
and the mindset, and again, do this with dignity, you will realize that it's not as hard as existing. A lot of founders might not find it easy because they're either having really hard time hiring, so they're afraid of not being able to replace the talent that they're letting go, or they might just be not really to take the short-term pain by which they're taking the long-term pain uh, because they're making work more painful, not just for themselves, but also for everybody else in the company. And for scaling startups after a price run, maybe it's Series A, a new board member comes to the board. How should founders leverage the board effectively after the price run? Because the board is a top-notch team of a founder. You need to first of all understand, hopefully you have the right right board members who can help you. I'm saying hopefully because that is not always very clear from get-go. At this, you know, it's, it's almost like marriage at this investing stage. Both the investors and the funders are like dating, right? Like you're doing the fine dining dating exercise where you're both trying to attract each other because you want to get into this deal. And once you actually move into the same, you know, same house, just like a marriage, and you have those people on your board, only then actually you get to know them and you get to really understand, you know, what, what people they can bring. So obviously, you know, there are things you can do to you understand the value that they bring on board earlier on by talking to founders that they have been working with, which you have to do. But once you understand what value they bring, that's the type of value you want to leverage. I think sometimes founders might try to leverage their board members for every possible scenario and help they might want to get, but it might not be the right thing to try to get you know, every possible type of help from every single board member. You need to really understand and the qualities and type of deal they can bring to leverage them with it. But also, I think it's important for a founder to be open to the extent possible about what help they want to prioritize getting from the board members. I think communication is key in that sense that if you're good at letting them know like this is the type of help I need, I need interest to these type of people. There are the, you know, three roles I'm hiring for. Um, please, by end of this month, get me, you know, five intros, you know, to the most skilled people that you know. If you know people in this type of companies or who had worked at this kind of companies, please get intros to those people. That's the type of like help you need to ask for. Just saying, you know, we're hiring three people this month um, on a board, you know, email or pre-note or deck doesn't really leverage them, right? You need to be much more specific than that. And same way with like sales. If you want them to help with sales, you know, be very clear about what kind of a um, sales target you have, what kind of companies you're going after. And sometimes you will actually find it very helpful to work with your board members outside of the board meetings. A lot of founders try to leverage their board during board meetings. I would say the most successful founders I've seen leverage their board members outside of the board meetings. Uh, board meetings has a very specific purpose, but if you, again, have board members who can be helpful, let's say, for example, how can you build your sales process, you can ask them, you know, like, do you have an hour or so and, you know, can you actually bring, you know, a head of sales who's built this organization in one of your other companies to jam with me to do a workshop for about an hour or two to help me understand how I should be building my sales organization. Same thing with like, you know, growth, you can, you can do that. Those times you spend with them outside of the board meetings are, I would say, 10x more valuable um, to you as a founder than the time you spend at the board meeting, which is, you know, finite and as a specific purpose. And on the fundraising side, while founders are closing the run, they focus on the valuation rather than focusing on what they will do in the next 18 months. What do you say about it? Do you think, is there a negotiation point in there? This is probably something that is much harder to control as a founder. What you can control is how much interest 
you can generate for your round. And I, when I say control, it's like influence, not necessarily control. You cannot decide how much interest um, to bring for your round. If a fund optimizes for building the right type of company and raising at the right time, when there's a clear ROI from an investor coming in and you know, putting in $10 million and seeing the $10 million turn into you know, $50 million or $20 million, a year down the road, you will be able to gather as much interest as possible for your round. And unless you're able to do that, you don't have too much leverage on negotiation. So instead of trying to hold on to one investor and try to negotiate that investor, you know, as much as you can, a better approach is always trying to, you know, find the right way of fundraising, right timing for the fundraising, and creating the right type of momentum for your company for fundraising. So you generate as much interest as possible. When you have as much interest, actually you don't have to do too much. Obviously you have to, you know, have people who are experienced in fundraising before helping you. This can be your angel investors. This can be, you know, other funders who have just gone through their, you know, series A and series B, if it's crazy, series A, for example. You need to make sure that you can help from them because they have just gone through that. But failing to create that kind of demand and interest, you will not have much negotiation power. And achieving that kind of level of interest, you will see VCs quickly converge to the best terms possible to close around their favor. Their favor meaning that, you know, they, they get to be the lead investor or they get to, you know, invest first or a substantial amount of contribution. Um, so I would say founders should focus more on that. I, I see probably 90% of the founders focus on fundraising as if it's like an isolated exercise, but not as much on company building, product building, traction building, and, and making sure that they are raising at the right time in a way they can generate as much interest as possible. There's no shortcut to that. So I would definitely recommend that people focus more on that piece and that takes care of a lot of things versus, you know, chasing investors for a year and getting maybe one or two mildly interested parties and trying to negotiate something that makes sense with them because you don't have leverage at that point. And do you think it's the same formula to raise from top tier VCs? It is it is similar, but depending on who you are raising from, obviously VCs have craft their own game, right? They are um, very good at what they do for a reason. They crafted their game and you will almost always will get pressured to take terms that you might not necessarily be okay with day one, but almost every single VC understands that you are there also to negotiate. So in a way, top tier VCs might play this game slightly differently due to also the founder psychology being different, right? So when you get a term sheet from, for example, Sequoia, the way you feel about the term sheet is very different than the way you feel about a term sheet you get from a no-name VC. The term sheet you get from a no-name VC might be hundred times better, but Sequoia would know that actually their brand and their you know influence would go a long way. So you need to also understand as a founder how to take a step back and evaluate things as objectively as possible, which is a hard thing to do. And that's why you need to surround yourself with, you know, either angel investors who understand this game or people who have raised, you know, before to help you along the way. And not make any rush decisions. If you have interest from a VC, you will have interest from the same VC for a long period of time. You're almost always going to get pressured to take a term sheet, but if they already made the decision to do the term sheet, um, they will do the term sheet next month as well. Great. And I'm coming to my last question. For the pandemic right now, people are living SF. Do you think this will change the investment thesis of VCs and also change the perspectives of founders who want to start their journeys in SF? Very hard question. I was actually looking into that the other day. We'll see. 
we'll see. It is definitely changing the temporary environment in the sense that most VC meetings are not happening physically. And when they're not happening physically, I think we are all getting more used to a different time of space and time understanding. And that's probably making also investors relatively more flexible in terms of how they will start thinking about their future funnel of you know investments and early prospects and how they build it up. So I, I think there's definitely going to be change that we will see. To what extent, I don't necessarily know. Is the talent all left the area in San Francisco? No, not yet at least. Has there been people who has left? Yes. Has there been people who will not come back? Yes. But still the majority of the density of talent is here. So until that evaporates completely, there's still going to be a very strong funding funding and startup ecosystem area. But obviously, the people who are leaving will also accelerate the build-up of new ecosystems in other parts of the country. You're always going to start seeing large density of startups in lower tax states, for example. You're seeing, I think it was Palantir that just moved to um, Colorado. You're going to see more, more companies rising from uh, states that have the right environment, climate, maybe young talent. You know, Austin's already booming. I think you'll see Portland already, you know, LA, Seattle, Colorado, maybe even, you know, definitely Miami. You, you'll see more parts of the country booming. Thanks to kind of like, you know, talent dissolving to different parts of the nation. But I don't think it's going to change the fact that the area is the center of the, this tech ecosystem, at least in the US for the time being. But we'll, we'll see. I, I might be um, completely off on this one. Ariel, these are all my questions. I think each of those answers are pretty valuable for founders who are ready to scale their companies. And thank you for coming to Founders FAQ. Thank you, Carlos. It's a pleasure. By the way, Founders FAQ is in pre-order and it covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey. Whether revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path, building A-plus teams, creating an evolving machine, setting up a need culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising. You can pre-order it from foundersfaq.com and you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook.